We are back and this is the official Stats to Podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. If you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I really do always love to see you there. But to our episode today, and I first had this guest on 20VC over three years ago, both he and the business have scaled phenomenally since then. And so I'm thrilled to welcome back David Politis to the hot seat today. Now, David is the founder and CEO of BetterCloud, the company that helps IT discover, manage and secure the digital workplace. To date, David has raised over 100 $186 million in funding with BetterCloud from the likes of Excel, Warburg Pincus, Greycroft, Flybridge, and Dropbox, to name a few. Before founding BetterCloud, David was an early employee of Cloud Sherpas, acquired by Accenture, where he led the company to become the leading cloud services partner to SMBs worldwide. And prior to Cloud Sherpas, David was a founding employee and general manager of Vocalocity, acquired by Vonage, which he grew into one of the top providers of cloud PBX technology. But before we dive into the show stage, you ever wonder who's keeping digital services? Services running for companies like Zoom, Netflix, and DoorDash? Do you wonder who helps Peloton keep delivering equipment around the world on time? It's PagerDuty. 58% of the Fortune 100 relies on PagerDuty, and you should too. PagerDuty is the central nervous system for your digital ecosystem. They use automation and machine learning to bring together the right people with the right information so they can address issues and opportunities in minutes and seconds, not hours. That means faster crisis response, fewer incidents, and happier customers. And right now they're offering a free starter license, which includes unlimited alerting and on-call management for the first six months. Visit pagerduty.com to sign up today. And speaking of the importance of speed there with PagerDuty, hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Largy Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solution make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your dev's time piecing together analytics and let them focus on your core application. Visit largianalytics.com forward slash Sasta for a demo and see what's possible with Largy today. But that's quite enough from me. So now I'm very, very excited to hand over to David Politis, founder and CEO at BetterCloud. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. David, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. As we were joking about beforehand, it's been three years since our last episode. What a three years it's been. But thank you so much for joining me once again today. Thank you, Harry. It's really good to be here. Good to be talking to you again. That is so kind of you. But I do want to kick off. And for those that missed our first episode, how did you make your way into what I always call the wonderful world of SaaS, but most importantly, come to found BetterCloud? Yeah, so I, I started my career in 2004 when I graduated from undergrad. I started at a SaaS company actually before it was called SaaS, before the term cloud was being used, I started at a company which turned out to be one of the first ever cloud PBX businesses in the world. It was called Vocalocity. And so that's how I started my career. I started in SaaS. I went from Vocalocity, which became one of the top cloud PBX businesses in the world, went from there to a company called Cloud Sherpas, which was one of the first cloud consulting or cloud, I'd say systems integrators in the world and became one of the largest and one of the most successful. And at Cloud Sherpas, I saw this massive shift, once in a generation type of shift to the cloud. I had seen it at Vocalocity with SMBs moving to the cloud, but at Cloud Sherpas, I saw enterprises starting to shift their productivity, their collaboration suites to the cloud. And when I saw that, that was in 2010, it became clear there was going to be a massive opportunity in this space. And as these companies made the shift to the cloud, 
cloud made the shift to SaaS specifically, they were going to need a whole new set of tools to manage and secure those environments. And so I started Better Cloud in November 2011 with the vision of providing exactly that, a platform to manage and secure these SaaS environments. Now, to be honest, at the time, I thought Better Cloud, we were going to be managing and securing one SaaS platform, which was G Suite at the time, or called Google Apps. But now, when you look at it, we've expanded that as SaaS has exploded and the use has exploded, and we've moved to this really best of breed world. There's a need for a SaaS ops platform that sits across all these SaaS applications and gives IT central visibility, control, security around those best of breed applications they have in their environment, like G Suite, Slack, Dropbox, Box, Salesforce, Office 365, so on and so forth. So my whole career has been in SaaS and it's been crazy to see what has happened in this space and how it's exploded. And it's really exciting. Can I ask, because, you know, the thing that's fascinating is kind of two different stories. One is like enterprise adoption of the cloud, which is incredible. And when you look at the rate of cloud growth, it's been phenomenal to see. But then when you also look at the underlying data, there's still a huge amount of enterprises on-prem and not transitioning to the cloud. Like, has the rate of adoption of enterprise to cloud been what you expected, been slower, been faster? Did it meet expectations? It has been a lot slower than I had expected. When I started this company, I thought, oh, just a matter of a couple of years and all the companies in the world are going to be adopting these SaaS platforms. I really believed that at the time. And it's taken a really long time and been slower than I expected. If we're being honest, I think a lot of that is due to just a lot of inertia. You know, it's just people have been in these old environments with these security requirements or people are scared for their jobs and they don't want to rip and replace all their technologies and put their jobs at risk. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why it's taken longer, but it's taken longer. And I'll say what has happened in the last three months with COVID, which honestly, this is not the way we would want to see this happen, but with all the shelter in place, all the work from home, this has been a catalyst for SaaS adoption like I've never seen before in my entire career. We are seeing enterprises just get essentially just thrown off the edge, thrown into the deep end, and they're being forced to buy and deploy and adopt SaaS in a way that they've never... I, I really believe that the SaaS adoption that would have taken the next three years has happened in a three-month window. And given how long we've been stuck in this world, that's just driving the adoption of these applications higher and higher. And I think it means they're going to be stickier and stickier in these enterprise environments. Can I ask, do you get concerned about the sustainability of this growth or actually with the kind of long-term and sustainable transition to remote work and work from home, that this will be an ongoing feature of the revenue and actually much more stable than a lot would suggest. Yeah, we feel like it is going to be stable because what we've seen firsthand, and I've seen this literally my entire career, is when you put these applications in front of the end users, it is extremely difficult to rip them out. Because once people start putting business processes and start running the companies and their departments and their teams, and they just do work in these applications, it is really difficult to go backwards because it's like going from a car that has power steering back to cars before they had power steering. Like who really wants to have that experience when you've all of a sudden, the whole experience of working has improved. You're not going to take that away from people. So I believe we've accelerated the adoption. The pace cannot continue. 
continue like this. I think we've just, we've accelerated the adoption, but now it's here to stay because very few companies, I think it's going to be very difficult for companies to rip this stuff out. Can I ask, and we're, we're a little bit off schedule, but I love natural conversations, so fuck it. And my question <laughs> is, like, funny, with the acceleration, were you ready for it as an organization? Because with it becomes much more increased sales team to really take advantage, much higher level of customer success, much higher level of customer service. Were you ready for it given you didn't have a six-month ramp time? We've been moving up market for a while now. We continue to move up market in terms of types of customers that we're serving into larger and larger organizations. What I will say is this, again, has accelerated the conversations that we're having with organizations that are 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people. And so to answer your question, we were preparing for this. We weren't preparing for it to happen this quickly. And so we have changed our roadmap around in certain areas. We've prioritized hiring in some very specific areas, mostly around customer success, helping people use the product and making sure that they're getting the most value out of the product. Because what you find, for example, we have an organization we're working with right now. It's a hundred-year-old insurance company. And this is an organization whose entire IT team has never touched a SaaS platform ever. Their entire IT team, they're Microsoft top to bottom. And Microsoft, I'm talking about legacy exchange and Active Directory and everything. And so this is a team that does doesn't even know where to start. They don't understand the new paradigm and they need help. And so where we see the most of our investment is around customer success and helping people use our product, but really just define best practices for their heterogeneous best of breed environment that three months ago didn't exist at all. And that I think is the big area where we've had to put energy. You mentioned kind of the energy and the focus on hiring that. And you know, hiring within scaling SaaS orgs is such an interesting topic because many people say, actually, you know, the people that get you from naught to a million or 10 million in ARR won't be able to get you to 10 to 50 million and very much kind of segment people by stage. I guess, first off, do you agree with this commonly held trope of kind of segmentation by stage of people? Or do people have plasticity to move across stage? I think that some people have the ability to go from stage to stage and see the entire journey. I do believe that there are few and far between of those types of people because it's a type of personality. It's a way of working. What I have seen in my career is that there are very few of those people that can take the entire journey. And I don't know exactly where the line breaks are. Is it 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, 5 million, 100 million? I'm not sure that those breaks are so clear in terms of the stages, but it's clear that there's someone who's really good at early stage. There's a set of people who just have the personality, the work style, the leadership style, the risk (laughs) profile to go after that early stage. And then as you evolve, and I have not seen a business that is extremely late stage. I've not been part of a public company. So I'm sure that as I see the evolution, there's more stages I haven't even seen. But I definitely believe that it's different people at different stages for the most part. Okay, so if that's the case, and I do actually agree with you, I have to say, but if that's the case, and we're scaling and we're in that kind of transition period from one stage to the next, and we're contemplating whether someone is scaling or not. So what are the leading indicators do you think, and from your experience, suggests that someone's struggling to make that transition? There's a number of them. I'd say number one to me is when people go from being proactive, when leaders, especially I'm talking about executives and leaders, when they go from being proactive to being reactive. And again, there's a lot going on. So you're going to have to be reactive to some things, but the leaders who understand a certain stage or who are right for that stage, in my view, they can see around the corners. They know what's going 
come next and they can prepare for that. They're going eyes wide open into that next stage. And what I see is if people are have not seen it, it's not natural to them, they're going to start falling behind on the things that need to get done and everything is going to be reactive. And you could be proactive from living through those stages. You could be proactive from having mentors that can take you through those stages and advise you through those stages. There's a lot of ways to be proactive, but that's where I see the difference. And then of course, in performance, just in pure performance of their teams, of their departments, of the company, you can start to see when people start breaking down. And in some cases, when I've had conversations with people, they'll offer up themselves that they feel like they've reached a ceiling or they've reached a point where it's not right for them anymore. I've actually had people volunteer that information. Now, of course, you have to make that conversation safe, I guess, for them to have. But I've seen that occur where people say, I just don't feel like this is the right stage for me. And so there are a number of different ways, but those are some of the big ones. Well, that was one of my questions, which is like, when it comes to that communication with them, how do you think about the right way to communicate to them? Maybe those that are less self-aware, that they're not scaling within the team in a way and speed that they should do. And I guess subsequently, sorry for the double question, how do you think about like internal migration of roles versus actually kind of scaling out? So in terms of the conversations that I have had, it's usually reached a point where there is a set of clear things that have not been done, or there's a set of best practices that are very clear for that next stage. And I learned those best practices by reading, by talking to people, by meeting with our advisors, our investors. And when there starts to be enough of these items, usually that's how I present that to the person who is to say, hey, here's all this information. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not following this best practice. And usually this is not one, two, three, four, five things. It's 10, 20 things. And when you start listing those items out, and usually in that conversation, most people will acknowledge Yeah, I didn't even think to do that. I didn't even know because instead of just saying, I feel this, I think showing people here's the types of things I would have expected us to be doing at this point and we're not, that helps to open up that conversation usually. And I've seen a lot of success, frankly, with keeping people inside of an organization and either moving their role, changing their role, because you spend so much time. Usually these people are really capable and culturally a good fit and they've delivered, you know, they've really contributed to the business. And so I've seen that be successful. The challenge in the internal moves is that the person who's making that move is ready to have that type of a change. Because if you have someone who's got a VP level title and you're going to move them to a director, for example, that could be difficult for someone for a whole host of reasons. And so it's hard to make actually work but it is very possible to make work. It's just, it's about the person that you're doing that with and the roles that they're moving into and from. In terms of the new role and kind of new person coming into the organization, once we kind of flip to that maybe more positive mindset, you know, there's <laughs> always, well, having said that, there's, there's always challenges of bringing in new execs into scaling orgs. What are the challenges of bringing in new execs to scaling orgs from your perspective now, having done it a couple of times with BetterCloud? We actually just went through this very recently. Last year, we brought in a number of new executives. And the challenge when you bring in new executives is even if they have amazing experience, and even if these people have, they know the industry and they know they're coming into a new company, they're coming into a new set of customers, they're coming into a new team. And so there is a lot of time that it takes for someone to really get up to speed and become one with the 
organism, if you will. You know, if you think about this like living thing that is the company, it takes time for someone to enter that and become one with it. And I've seen that a number of times. And again, I had, I've just gone through this. And the key is first is getting them to understand their team to understand their department, their direct reports, everyone. I mean, really to spend that time. Like that to me is so important and it has to come first. And really simultaneously with that is getting into the working rhythm with their peers and the other executives on the team because that's where they're going to make or break their success, if you will, at the organization is with their peers, with their team. So it's a lot of that just gelling with those people and understanding the motions and the processes and things like that. And for us, I've had this really big challenge of in the first 90 days, in the first 120 days, first six months, really, of someone being in a role. For me, part of the challenge is how do you balance being really involved with this executive and with their team and making sure they're doing a good job while at the same time giving them space to build their own cadence and their own relationships and their own successes. It's a really interesting balance. And that's something that I'm still learning how to do. And I think it's a mix art science. I don't know. No, listen, it absolutely is. And I think it's also just an evolving kind of characteristic and it evolves both with you and with the kind of changing workforce and work from home changes everything, especially onboarding and getting to know the team and the mechanics of the org. And so I think bluntly, it's a transient skill that needs to ever evolve. So uh, yeah, I think you can take some consolation in that. I do want to ask, because in terms of like really getting to know the org from the exact level, you know, radical transparency is always thrown around as this kind of brilliant term to have within your org and the benefits of it. But And you said it before in terms of you having it at better cloud. I guess my first question is, it is so thrown around. What does it actually mean to you in terms of radical transparency? So radical transparency, in my mind, it's making sure that everyone has access essentially to the same information, good, bad, ugly, that people are sharing what they're working on, that people are sharing when they're going to deliver what they're working on, when the leadership sharing how the business is doing, answering questions, the hard questions, the hard questions that people have. It's really about giving everyone access to this information in a world where all of our information, it's at our fingertips. I mean, everyone can get at any piece of information whenever they want. And in companies, that's not really always the case. And I think radical transparency is about trying to make that happen and make that a reality in a business type setting. Totally agree with you in terms of, kind of as you said that, especially enabling access to everyone within the org. I guess the process of practicing it's a different thing. When you think about really implementing that across the org, and the big question for me is like the transition, because it's easy at 10 people, it's challenging at 100, and it's even more so at 300. How does the process of practicing that radical transparency change with scale? When you're small, it is easy. Now reflecting on it, when you're small, it is easy to be transparent because if the company is five people, 10 people, your all hands meetings are done in a conference room. You're done in a Zoom where you can see everyone in the tiles in one view. It's easy. It's easy to have the conversations. It doesn't have to be very structured. It's generally speaking, it's a decision you still have to make and you have to be deliberate about it, but it's easy to do. And that's how I did it. In the early days, it was just about let's do an all hands meeting and we just sit there and talk. 
Literally, I would just talk. Here's what's happening. Here's how the business is doing. Maybe pull up a couple of spreadsheets and things like that. That was the extent of it. And people would ask questions because it was a very intimate group and people felt comfortable asking questions. And it was really like a family, if you will, at that stage. As we've gotten bigger, we've had to put more process and systems, if you will, around transparency. So for example, we've now moved to post-COVID, we've moved to two all-hands per week. So twice a week for 30 minutes, we do all-hands meetings via Zoom. And we let people ask anonymous questions in those all-hands meetings, and we answer all of them. I mean, I've been doing that since the beginning of Better Cloud. I've answered hundreds, I don't, maybe thousands of anonymous questions. And as an example, but we leave time for people to be able to ask those questions and for those questions to be answered. For example, we produce our KPIs and our really our OKRs get sent to the whole company. Everyone can see all the OKRs for everyone in the company. They get they get emailed out. The results get emailed out at the end of a quarter. We have office hours where the executives hold office hours and they do 30-minute office hour blocks where people can sign up for it. We do leadership effectiveness, 360 reviews, essentially, where people can do reviews on their leaders. And then the leaders actually share those reviews back to their teams and, and fully transparent, good, bad, ugly. Here's the review. Here's how it came back. Here's what I'm going to work on. And so all these things, and we have a long, long list. We do Every year we do a an anonymous survey to the whole company with usually about 50 questions and let people voice all the things that they're happy about, not happy about. And we share the results back to the whole company. And so it takes just a lot more work. It takes many more hours to be transparent when you have more people, more departments, you know, people with just different backgrounds, they process information differently. And so transparency has become more deliberate. It's become more time-consuming, but it's become arguably more valuable because when I look at it, if I can deliver that information, if I can share with people why we're doing something, how the business is doing, the areas of risk, the areas of focus, if I can do that effectively at scale and answer people's burning questions and sensitive questions, if I can do that at scale, I should be able to empower the organization to move quicker, to have less anxiety, if you will, or just preoccupation with things on their mind that they can't get answered. So that has been my goal, but it has changed really tremendously from the beginning. Can I ask, you know, you enable the transition to cloud for some of the best and biggest apps in the world. When you think about your own stack state to enable this radical transparency internally, what does that look like for you? It's Slack, it's Notion, it's Airtable. What does the internal stack look like to really enable this real-time truth system of record for you? So Slack is definitely a big piece of this. I mean, in Slack, we have a channel, for example, called wins. And anytime that there's a win, if it's a new customer we bring on board or a new review that we get, like a positive review, any win automatically gets published into this channel through a Slack bot. And so people can see that real time, all the time. We have a Slack bot that gives the roadmap, our upcoming roadmap with delivery dates, Every week, it publishes that roadmap. It gives the updated dates. It gives the detail. We have so much that happens in Slack on a regular basis, just automated, that pushes all this information. So that's a big one. Zoom is, of course, a big one. That's how we hold our all-hands meetings. Well, of course, that's how we hold all meetings today, but that's how we hold our all-hands meetings. That 
We also use Google Meet to make it a little more complicated. And then we use Google Forms to do the anonymous questions. So we have a Google Form we've set up with a bunch of fields that we use for the anonymous questions for the all hands. We use Tableau for our dashboards and for the data. So everyone has access to that, again, in different pieces, depending on what they focus on. And then we have Ally. Ally is what we use. It's a new product that we're using, which is what we use for our OKRs. And so we give everyone access to Ally so they can see, they have read and actually comment access on on everything, on everyone's OKRs. So we use that for OKRs. So we use a whole slew, as you can imagine, of products. And we've added more and more, frankly. The truth is, is that we're living in the reality, to your point, we're living in the reality that our customers are living in. There's different products for different uses. There's products that have been purpose-built to do NPS, for example. And so we'll use that for the customers. There's products that have been purpose-built for big, I I think Zoom's handling of big meetings, large meetings is better than Meet. But I think Meet is actually, if you're a Google shop, is a better for one-on-ones. And so there's really a product for all these different use cases. I totally agree there is. In terms of kind of the many different products and the different attempts with those products, is there any processes, initiatives with regards to instilling that transparency that haven't worked so well and you tried it and actually didn't produce the result mm-hmm. you thought? So I heard a podcast, I believe it was Diane Green. It was a podcast where she was talking about, I don't know if it was at a business school class or something, and she was talking about how at VMware, they would send out a weekly email that essentially had all the, each department head would talk about what they had achieved, what they were working on. And I thought that was brilliant. And I listened to that. And this happens a lot to me. I hear some idea like that. And that's, we got to do that. We got to do that for better cloud. And so we did that. And each week, Week, we forced every or each two weeks we forced everyone to give us their updates and put it in a long email and send it out and it was just really hard for people to pro and it took a lot of work <laughs> I mean, it was it took more work than it should have taken and it just didn't work for our org i'm not sure why but i think it was just too in the weeds for some departments too high level for other departments and it just didn't work and so that's an example where i heard an idea it worked for someone else and it didn't work for us that's the one that really sticks out in my mind you know the other one we went to all hands meetings that were longer that were less frequent. So we were having meetings once a month and we ended up moving them to once every two months and we made them 90 minutes. And that also didn't work because it became too long. People's attention span, they could not sit and listen to that for 90 minutes, listen to me speak, they're falling asleep. 90 minutes is too much. And so now this 30 minute all hands that we do twice a week is a hundred times better just the engagement is so much better and the presentations are 20 minutes max. And so that's another example where we've tried a bunch of different things and we've always, it's a matter of really listening to the team and seeing what's working, what's not, and being okay, shutting things down, if you will, if they're not working or changing them. Oh, David, that's music to my ears. I mean, you know me, uh, focused around 20 minutes and attention span. <laughs> I love. So uh, I'm totally aligned to you there. I do want to move into my favorite element of any episode, which is the quick fire round. So I say a short statement. You hit me with your immediate thoughts. And the theme of uh, time constraint is 60 seconds per one maximum. Ready to roll? 
Yep, I'm ready. So what's the hardest element of your role with Bassetown today? Easily the hardest thing for me, patience. I want to attack every day. I want to attack every problem. I want everything to be done basically immediately. And the patience to understand that things take time. And as the organization has gotten bigger, I cannot do the actual work myself in many cases, especially these big projects that we may want to deliver a product. It may take us six months or nine months, given the size of what we want to do. And for me, it's just that patience because I every day I just want to attack and check things off the list and go after it. So patience. We mentioned it beforehand, but I am intrigued and it's unfair of me to throw it in, but I have to anyway. How's fundraising different in a pandemic world? (laughs) Fundraising is different in a pandemic world. One, because you have to find the right investor who in 2019, finding investors who are ready to be aggressive and do deals quickly and make big bets, that of course, easier in 2019. Post-COVID, especially in the early days, we're talking about early March, which is really when I was fundraising, that was much more difficult. You have to find an investor who's been through a firm that has been through these downturns before, who has the stomach for it, who has the long-term view of the world. So that's number one. It's It's a different type of investor, in my opinion. And number two is is not meeting in person for some of the most critical and important meetings in a fundraising process and doing everything via Zoom, three-hour, four-hour-long Zooms, it's a very different experience. I think one of those things that has reminded me how important that in-person time is, is trying to fundraise and trying to build a connection and rapport with investors, anyone, with anyone new, but with investors, you're going to get into this really important relationship and high stakes and doing that via Zoom is different. It's different and not something I would want to do again if I could avoid it. But um, yeah, that, and then I would say the last thing is your mid-COVID, things are changing by the day, frankly, by the day. And so putting out a plan, putting out a operating plan that someone's going to invest behind, that's a really hard thing to do when you're still trying to figure out what the world's going to look like. So this was a crazy experience, frankly. I think and, if you can predict operational budgets in the time of COVID, David, you should be in hedge funds and investing in public markets, and I'll give you my money in that case. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm that good at it. We'll find out. I'll let you know at the end of the year how we did. What do you believe the most around you disbelieve? I will say the one thing I believe and I've always believed is I don't have a lot of work-life separation, work-life balance. I don't really have a lot of hobbies or any hobbies. I, I love work. Work and life for me are very much mixed together. And I think that that's okay and healthy. I, I love it. This is what my dream was to do this. I'm doing it. And there's nothing else in the world I'd want to do. And a lot of people have been challenged on that a lot. Is this healthy? Do you need work-life balance? You need to separate. I believe if you really are that passionate about what you do, yeah, of course you need a break here and there, but Anyway, that's my feeling. Yeah, no, I normally just ask if Elon Musk has work-life balance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then tell me, what would you most like to change about the world of SaaS? The biggest thing I would change that we're dealing with firsthand as a major challenge is more standardization to... APIs or standards, I guess you would say around APIs. When we when we go and integrate into a SaaS platform that we want to support in Better Cloud, the work required to go and integrate into their APIs, it's in many cases, it's unique 
for each platform. The way that Box handles their files API is different than Dropbox, is different from OneDrive, is different from Google Drive. And it is extremely difficult to really try to create this, not just for us, for anybody. If you want to really use these APIs, there are no real standards around the files APIs or the channels APIs, the groups APIs. There are around user attributes and there is skim and like there are standards around that, but more broadly, it would make for an easier integration ecosystem, if you would, if there was more standards there. Totally agree with you in terms of the standardization of APIs that always drive me crazy when you see just a variation. The final one that I have to ask is when you look back, what do you know now you wish you'd known when you started Better Cloud? You asked an excellent question earlier that is the thing that I wish I knew, which is the speed of adoption, the rate of adoption of SaaS has been slower than I expected it to be. The level of trust in some of the SaaS platforms like a Slack or a Zoom have taken longer than I expected them to take. And if I understood that, I think the speed of investment would have changed and the priority of roadmap, product roadmap would have changed. For me, from where I was sitting 10 years ago, 12 years ago, eight years ago, I've always felt like this is just, it's happening and it's happening really quickly. But that was in the bubble that I was in. And when you take a step back to your point, even today still, there's still there's still enterprises that are holding back and that are not going all in. And so for me, I I wish I knew the exact rate of adoption of SaaS. That would have changed a lot of the investments and the roadmap and things like that. David, listen, I think it's going to go much faster now with the COVID times ahead. But I I do want to say thank you so much. Honestly, I've so enjoyed this. Every three years, we're going to do a show. Yes, exactly. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Harry. I do just always so love my chats with David. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, do you ever wonder who's keeping digital services running for companies like Zoom, Netflix, and DoorDash? Do you wonder who helps Peloton keep delivering equipment around the world on time? It's PagerDuty. 58% of the Fortune 100 relies on PagerDuty, and you should too. PagerDuty is the central nervous system for your digital ecosystem. They use automation and machine learning to bring together the right people with the right information so they can address issues and opportunities in minutes and seconds, not hours. That means faster crisis response, fewer incidents, and happier customers. And right now, they're offering a free starter license, which includes unlimited alerting and on-call management for the first six months. Visit pagerduty.com to sign up today. And speaking of the importance of speed there with PagerDuty, hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Largy Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solution make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your devs' time piecing together analytics and let them focus on your core application. Visit largianalytics.com forward slash sasta for a demo and to see what's possible with Largy today. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.